Good morning, everyone. Pardon me for my tardiness. I was, was not having fun. I was in a meeting. How good, Lord, to be here. <laughs> Let's open with an invocation of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, we have finished looking at the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father. And so now we move on to the fourth chief part of the small catechism, which is baptism. If you have the 2017 edition of the small catechism, you will find that on page 23. If you have another edition, um, you'll, just have to, you'll just have to thumb forward through the Ten Commandments, the Creed, the Our Father. We do have some extra copies of the Book of Concord here. You can find the small catechism in here. I'm just going to set these over here to the side. They're a little more accessible if you want to sneak up and grab one if you need one of those, if you'd like to follow along. Just a, um, just a few comments here by way of preface. What is, what is the historical context in which Luther is giving us the small catechism? Well, at that point in time in Germany, virtually everyone is baptized at birth. So you have, you have an entire society that is basically baptized, and the assumption is that baptism is just normal, and in terms, and, and church life is normal, and in terms of church architecture, church liturgy, baptismal celebrations for every single person who's, who's born, imagine how common this is. It's hard for us to imagine. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around the way in which baptism would have been so prevalent in the day of Luther. I think that that shapes and forms what he gives to us in the small catechism because he gives us really a rather Spartan argument for what baptism is and what its blessings and benefits are. It might behoove us so far removed from Luther's context to just consider very briefly a larger biblical context. A larger biblical context so that we have our minds in the right place when we get to um, Jesus instituting baptism. In the scriptures, what's the first major event? Creation. Creation, right. And creation, in the beginning, uh, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and the Spirit was... Yes, the Spirit was hovering over the face of the waters. Where do those waters come from? The Bible's less interested in where those waters came from than the fact that there is water there and the connection between the water and the Spirit. You see, the entire foundation of creation is going to be water and the Spirit. So, when creation tanks, when Adam and Eve lead us into sin and all the bliss we are experiencing these days. Um, if, God, if God's going to set it right, how might he set it right? By the same way he created it, by water and the Spirit, precisely. So you can, see, you can see, for example, that Jesus teaches this thing to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, a text that Luther doesn't use in the small catechism. But you remember Nicodemus, this Pharisee, this very moral and upright man, comes to Jesus, he's very complimentary towards Jesus. Good teacher, we know that what you say and do comes from God. And Jesus rather tersely, rather abruptly, we might even say rudely, unless we knew our Lord and what he was after, says, you must be born again. Now what, does that, what does that actually mean? We, just, we hear that through so many theological filters, but, <laughs> but what does that actually mean? Yeah, like, you are so far from the kingdom. 
you have to become entirely something different than what you now are. And that's a, that's a huge shot across the bow. Well, it's more than a shot across the bow. It's a shot right into the bow of all of us. We cannot inherit the kingdom of God because we are merely flesh, and that which is flesh is flesh. We're bound to sin. We're bound to death. We must become something entirely new. We must become spirit. That which is spirit is spirit. And how do we do that? By being born again through water and the spirit. So you see what Jesus is doing. He's taking this, he's taking this creation theology that the whole world is created through water and spirit, and that it's fallen away, and now it's going to be restored through water and spirit, through this new birth. We are going to be brought back as children of God, as a new reconstituted human race. You see what's going on there? Okay. So, so there's a biblical, there's an Old Testament context for baptism that goes all the way back to the very first verses of the scriptures. Everything is created through water and the Spirit. What would be the next major event that jumps out to you in the scriptures that has to do with water? The flood. I mean, not even like seven or eight or so chapters later, and you've got the flood. Now, why on earth would God choose water? To erase the world that he made through water. <laughs> now, you see, it's self-evident. It's self-evident. Okay, so we see water as, as creative, but then water as destructive. What are we learning about God already? We're learning that God loves symmetry. Symmetry is beauty. He's written that into all things. And theology is symmetrical. Once you kind of grasp a hold of this, what's frustrating to us is, is our flesh and our fallen reason doesn't get the symmetry. It's not as easy as we would like. So we're frustrated with it. We do, it doesn't seem to fit. But the longer you stick with it, the more you see, oh, that's what he meant. That's even better than what I had assumed. So God loves this symmetry. Okay, so now what do we find? We find that through water he destroys the world, but as he's destroying the world, he's also doing what? Recreating the world. You have Noah and seven others saved through a brand new start, a brand new seed to the brand new human race. Okay, so we see that water, God now uses water to destroy, to kill, and to create to make alive. Guess who picks up on this theology? Whereas Jesus picks up on the Genesis 1 theology, the creation theology, and teaches that to Nicodemus, guess who picks up on this flood theology? St. Peter. And St. Peter ties this together in 1 Peter chapter 3, where he, he's talking about the flood and he's talking about it in a way that's strange to our ears, that the floodwaters are precisely what saved Noah and seven others. And now he says, baptism now saves you. Because those floodwaters, while, while they were doom and destruction and death to the whole earth, to Noah and his family, salvation. Salvation, a fresh start. And so now, now what does Peter say? Baptism now saves you. What, what might be the next major event in the Old Testament having to do with water? The Red Sea. Ah, you guys know your Bible. This is great. You're making it easy on me. Okay, now what happens in the Red Sea? Who's chasing who? The bad guys are chasing the good guys. That's right. That's right. Israel's being chased down by Pharaoh. Yeah, the Egyptians. Now, of course, the people are trapped. Pharaoh's closing in on them. The Red Sea's in front of them. When I, when I hear that now, I picture myself like standing down at Doheny or something, and you're just looking out at the water and picture an army bearing down on you. It's like, yeah, we're doomed. But God, through Moses, opens those waters. The people walk through, okay? And, and as soon as Pharaoh and his armies follow... As soon as God's people are through on the other side, God does what with the waters? Drowns them. Which again does two things. 
It destroys, but destroys who? Evil. The enemies of God's people. Destroyed. And then it also, we might say, saves. Yeah, because again, it's, it saves their life. Right? Now, guess who picks up on this theology of the Old Testament when teaching on baptism? We've done Jesus doing baptism from the Old Testament. We've done St. Peter doing baptism from the Old Testament. Now who? Paul. St. Paul picks up on the Exodus and says, and this is in 1 Corinthians 10, they were baptized into Moses through the sea. So he picks that up and he says that, look, this is a baptism. This is a foreshadowing of baptism. Okay, How might that instruct Paul's baptismal theology? Understanding that that's how Paul thinks about baptism. When we turn to Romans 6, which is, by the way, a text in the small catechism that we're going to get to. But when we turn to Romans 6, Paul says this. He, he makes this argument. He says, should we go on sinning that grace may abound? Certainly do not. Certainly we should not. Um, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? We have been buried with him through baptism into death. Oh, how I'd love to just meditate on this with you for the next 20 minutes. Because this is such a beautiful thing. When, when you read the Easter narratives about the tomb of Jesus, the tomb of the rich man, the tomb that was never used before, that's the tomb into which we are buried with Christ, baptized. Remember how I, how I preached on Easter. It was, and I stole this from the church fathers, of course. All the good stuff is stolen from them. Um, but but that, virgin, that virgin birth, that virgin womb from, from which Christ comes is paralleled in the virgin tomb from which he is the firstborn of the dead. You see, so we are all buried in that tomb with him. That's what Paul's saying through baptism. What is being buried? What is being put to death? Not Pharaoh and his armies, but the sinful flesh within us. So that when my son was baptized and I got the privilege of preaching that, my, my opening line to the sermon was, God just killed my son. That's true. It's true, he buried him with Christ into death through baptism so that the flesh dies. But then what's the counterpart? What's the second part? If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall also be united with him in a resurrection like his. So I could have equally said, God just made my son alive for the first time. Truly alive. Truly born anew. Born of water and the Spirit. Okay. So... So we can see that baptism has this destructive power. It destroys Pharaoh and the armies. It destroys the sinful flesh within us. And it has this redemptive resurrection type power. The power to save Israel and raise it up out of slavery into true freedom. To save us and raise us up out of slavery to sin and death into true freedom of God. We'll talk about this Romans 6 theology, but I just want you to see that, and I want you to see how closely connected it is to the Old Testament theology of baptism. If you just open the Bible and start thumbing through, three of the most major of all the major events have to do with water. And there are many, many others. We can talk about how the priests daily wash themselves to prepare to come into the presence of God a foreshadowing of baptism. We can talk about Naaman the leper who has to dip himself in the, in the Jordan River seven times and he comes out cleansed of his leprosy. And there are many other such instances we can talk about too. Um, some of you who plugged in for our Lenten sermon series heard all kinds of unusual off-the-beaten-path scriptural, Old Testament scriptural references to baptism and what it does. Now what's the point of all of this? The point of all of this is when Jesus says to his disciples after his death, after his resurrection, he's got the 11 there, and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Boy, what would really, what would really make them confused? What would really befuddle them? What would just be something off the wall random? Oh, I know. And just baptize them. You know, splash them with water. That'll... No. Jesus doesn't just come up with this weird idea out of the blue. This has a 
thoroughly biblical, thoroughly Old Testament context, so that when he says to all of these Old Testament literal, or Old Testament, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Literate, thank you. Literate disciples, they immediately go, yes, we get it. We get what baptism is. So make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, washing them, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them everything that I have commanded. That washing, just immediately, what's getting washed away? You don't even have to know the Bible to know what's getting washed away. So you say, go, go get everybody out there to take a shower. No, the point's not to get your body clean, but a baptism that is a washing away of sin. And of course, that's the very description we find. I mean, that's what uh, is told to Paul, rise, get up, wash your sins away. It's what Peter preaches to the crowd when they're cut to the heart, right out in Pentecost, when they're cut to the heart, what should we do? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. See, Spirit, water, forgiveness of sins. See how they're all connected in Peter's theology. Okay, so there's this rich biblical context of baptism, and I think that that's what, that's what Luther had and what many in Luther's day had, which is why he can kind of give a Spartan treatment of baptism, and everybody's already on board. So hopefully that'll get us into the context of, of understanding that, that God is a baptismal God. God is a God who has an only begotten Son, and God the Father begets sons. That's like who He is. That's why He is Father, because He begets sons. And so He creates a world in which He can beget sons. And already he's got all the hints and foreshadowing of that. And then it comes to full fruition in his son, Jesus Christ, be born again, and you will become the sons, the children of God. All right, so that gives us a, a little bit of a deep dive and a little bit more context for the sacrament of holy baptism. Now, if you're on page 23 in your 2017 small catechism, they've got these beautiful pictures. And I mean, not that they're particularly beautiful, they're black and white, but I mean beautiful in the sense that they, they if, if that picture is all you had, you might come to a pretty good theology of baptism. How so? Well, what's at the very top of that picture? The cross. What comes, what comes after the cross? Yeah, seashell. And how many drops are coming off the seashell? Three. Yeah, now a seashell, because water's kind of hard to depict. You know, it's like, what are those wavy things? So, so a seashell often just symbolizes water, and then the three drops coming off of it, what do you think those represent? Yeah, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Exactly right. And then you see in the background there, what do you see? Chalice. It looks like a chalice, but your belly would hurt if you drank all that was in that. Yeah, it's a baptismal font. It's a baptismal font. Okay, so what do you see? You see that what Jesus did on the cross is being communicated to you, given to you in baptism. I think this is the thing that freaks people out who they're, they're not familiar with the biblical Lutheran position. They're not, they're not comfortable with the language of baptism for the forgiveness of sins or baptism now saves you. They're, they tend to be thinking like this, the cross saves me, not baptism. Or on the other hand, they tend to be thinking, Faith saves me, not baptism. Christ alone, so it can't be baptism. Faith alone, so it can't be baptism, you see? But now, now how, could we, how could we reconfigure this so that it makes sense and so that the Bible isn't, isn't a kind of a twisted mess? Just like this. The cross alone saves you, and that is communicated to you through baptism, and that baptism as a word of God, faith comes by the word, right? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. That baptism as the word of God in and with the water creates and sustains faith in us. So are you saved by faith alone? Yes, because faith grasps hold of all that God has done. Are you saved by baptism? Yes, because it's the, mead and, the means and mode by which the cross is given to you. Are you saved by the cross alone? Of course. Without the cross, the baptism has no power to forgive sins. So alone, 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 and these three things all work in an in a economy, an ordering that makes perfect biblical sense. And that is depicted here in this picture, where you have the cross flowing down to baptism, flowing down to us. Just to jump really quickly again back to that Romans 6, which we're going to hit again, but think about this. You are being, through baptism, you are being 
buried with Christ. You're dying with him on the cross. You're being buried with him in his tomb. And, on, and you're rising with him. As he rose on Easter morn, you are, you are rising already in a spiritual resurrection. You're going to be raised on the last day in your body, just as he is raised in his. So you have, you have the cross being directly applied to you in the waters of baptism. Sounds like it's a little windy out there. Or a lot windy out there. It's kind of unusual for us. <clears throat> okay, so page 23, the sacrament of holy baptism. <clears throat> and we can, start, we can start here really basically too. What's a sacrament? So, so the language that comes to us in the New Testament is the language mysterion, which is where we get mystery. And it's why... Um, what we call the sacraments and many other teachings in the church are often called mysteries. Remember how Paul says, let a man account us as stewards of the mysteries of God. And then when that gets translated from mysterion, Greek, into Latin, it's the sacraments of God, you see. But now, what is, what is meant by sacrament in this broader sense? A sacrament is something that, a mystery, a sacrament is something that doesn't make sense to us. Which is like all of Christianity. <laughs> because our reason's fallen. And because God wants to be ascertained by faith. And if everything was by sight, oh yeah, I get it, it's obvious. And by reason, oh yeah, I get it, what place is there for faith? None. So God is constantly telling us things that make no sense to us. Why? Because he desires to be believed. Why does he desire to be believed? Because he wasn't in the garden. <laughs> and so the healing of our race, each one of us individually and all of us corporately, is to start believing him again. You know, the same thing happens in the garden. He says, he says don't eat of that tree. And Eve is sitting there getting tempted by the serpent. What, is, what does it say? She saw that it was good, pleasing to her eyes. Good for food, pleasing to her eyes. So what does she see? She sees, oh, this is delicious. This is going to be wonderful. And God says, there's death hidden in there. And she doesn't believe his word. She goes with her eyes, with her reason, and she eats and sins. Now, now what does God do? Well, quite, quite frequently, he does the opposite. Instead of a beautiful tree that is good to eat and in the midst is death, he gives us the most ugly tree you could possibly imagine. Hanging from it is the most hideous fruit you could possibly conceive of. And he says, eat this, and it is life. What am I talking about? The tree of the cross and the fruit that hangs on it, Christ's body and blood, you see. God demands, God demands to speak and be believed, even when that's contrary to our sight and our reason. Honestly, our entire lives are built this way. Our entire lives are built this way, to where, to where God is constantly promising and being gracious to us, and then sending afflictions and challenges, crosses, and things that seem to contradict his love for us. So that by our reason and by our sight, we cannot grasp him, but only by faith, by what he says. So that even when something greatly evil is happening to us, we have to say, if God sends this to me, it is for good. Or even if this is in and of itself an evil thing, I trust that God will somehow some way use this for my good. So this is the great challenge of faith. That's why it's dynamic and why we need to be reminded of this every Lord's Day, that this is who our God is and this is what he says because everything we're living and experiencing and seeing on the news is contrary to that. Right? So that's, that's what we're getting at when we get at mis mystery, biblically understood sacrament. How is God one in three and three in one? It's a It's a mystery. How are we supposed to believe that? On its face, it's illogical, okay? That may not ultimately be illogical, but on its face, it appears that way. Christ is true God and true man. He both knows everything and grows in wisdom. How can that be? That makes no sense. Um, and on we go down from the person of God, the, tr the tr Trinity, down to the person of Christ, two natures in one person, down to every single doctrine. Every single doctrine has this kind of contradiction in it. Um, maybe one, one more that's a little bit abstract, but um, is it God alone who saves? 
Yes, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. Why aren't all men saved? Oh, maybe God predestined some to hell. No, God says, I desire all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Wait, so which is it? God wants everyone to be saved, only God saves. Why aren't they? It doesn't make any sense. It makes no more sense than the Trinity, no more sense than the divinity and humanity of Christ. No more sense than when Christ hands his disciples a piece of bread and says, this is my body, and hands them a, his, his cup of wine and says, this is my blood. It makes no sense. He wants to be believed simply on the basis of his word, that he is who he is, and he is who he says he is. Okay, so when we're talking about sacrament then, how does the church think about this? Well, the church comes to think of all, these are all sacraments. Every article of the faith is a sacrament because there's this mysterious aspect. There's this contradictory aspect. There's this endlessly deep aspect. Um, you can learn everything there is to know about the Trinity and like barely have your ankles in the ocean. You know, that's what heaven is going to be about, is finally learning with our full faculties. Then, um, what Christians noticed, um, Augustine is, uh, is credited with this, that there's, this, there's these certain kind of things, two of them, if you want to be strict about it, that fit this criteria. Okay? They have a word of God, a command of God, do this, okay? and they have a visible sign. In baptism, that visible sign is water. In the Lord's Supper, that visible sign is bread and wine. And here's the third ingredient. So, so they have the command of God, they have a visible element, and they communicate God's gracious favor in Christ Jesus. If you define a sacrament in that narrow way, based on those three criteria, as Augustine did, and by the way, Augustine just leads the church in the West. Everybody after Augustine is dealing with Augustine in one way, shape, or form, including Luther. He's an Augustinian monk. Okay. So then what are the sacraments defined as such? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so that's how that comes to us in the West and thus in the Catechism as the sacrament of holy baptism or the sacrament of the altar. These are the two sacraments. Sometimes people want to add in absolution as a sacrament. The only thing is weird, that's weird about that is it makes the pastor the visible element. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. You've got, you've got water in baptism, you've got bread and wine in communion, you've got roadie. I guess. In, yeah, so you can see why that sometimes is a, is a third sacrament, sometimes not. Okay, so that's what we mean by a sacrament then. In the narrow sense, something commanded by God, something that has a visible element or sign, water, and something that communicates God's grace, grace to us, his gracious attitude toward us in Christ Jesus. Okay, so once more, as the head of the family should teach it in a simple way to his household. First, there are four parts here. First, what is baptism? As is Luther's way, he's going to write for us what it is and that he's going to prove that by God's word. So, baptism is not just plain water. But, it is the water included in God's command and combined with God's word. Okay? So, where do we get baptismal water? When you become a pastor, you get a special little font, and it just bubbles up every time you... No. No, you get baptismal water from the faucet. Yeah, it's just plain water. There's this beautiful line in the baptismal liturgy, that in the baptism of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord in the Jordan, you sanctified all waters to be a lavish washing away of sins. Isn't that gorgeous? Ah, oh, so beautiful. And I think the physics bear it out, but I won't go down that track. So, so, all water is already sanctified, set apart for this use. I mean, that already changes the whole... Like, if you actually believe that, it changes the whole shape of everything. Like, all water is baptismal water. It's just waiting to be used. That's how lavish God's grace is and how prevalent His salvation is. Everywhere you look and see water. What percentage of the planet is water? Something like 75 or 80, something like that. Yeah, so, do you think God's saying something? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Okay, so baptism is not just plain water. Well, what makes it not plain, plain water, even though we get it out of the sink? Ah, because it's the water included in God's command and combined with God's word. Um, combined with God's word is the easiest for us to wrap our heads around. That word, as we're going to see, is the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
When God attaches that word to the water, that is a ba true baptism, a lavish washing away of sins, God claiming you as his own, etc. But what's this business about included in God's command? Well, when I was a little kid, I um, was in the bathtub, and I had a ton of little bath toys. My dad's a Lutheran pastor, so I got pretty into this stuff. And I had all my little bath toys in there, and I figured, why not baptize them? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, they're all baptized. Is that a valid baptism? Will I see all those guys in heaven? No. <laughs> Similarly, when little siblings baptize each other in the bathtub, um, why is that not a baptism? Because that's not included in God's command. Okay? Why, why wouldn't it be a baptism? Why wouldn't we be the greatest evangelists ever if we said to all the unbelieving world, hey, come to Faith Lutheran Church, free lobster tail and filet mignon. $100 a bottle of wine. Come, come, come. And then as soon as everybody's like, like pouring in, we get them in a narrow area. Then we turn on the sprinklers. And I just shout from a loudspeaker, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, you're all baptized. Ha! Into heaven you go. Is that, a, is, that a, is that baptism? No. Why? We've got the word of God and we've got water. How is it not baptism? Because it's not God's command. And so that's this point, that baptism isn't just plain water, but it is the water included in God's command and combined with God's word. Okay? In other words, you want to baptize for the purposes by which God has us baptized, namely to make disciples. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them. Okay? So that's, that's the explanation of Luther's first line here on baptism. Um, now, he mentions that this is water combined with God's word. So the next question is, which is that word of God? Christ our Lord says in the last chapter of Matthew, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So there's that word of God. There is not only the command, the institution, as it were, of Christian baptism, but also that word, namely, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, why is it the name instead of the names of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Because it's one God in three persons. And you have a beautiful proof of that right here. You know, every so often you'll get somebody say, the Bible never teaches the Trinity. Well, it's true enough that they don't ever use that word, Trinity, but they use the precise concept. One name, three persons, one in three, three in one, tri-unity, Trinity. Second, what benefits does baptism give? Again, Luther's going to state a theological point and then back that up with a scriptural text. It works forgiveness of sins, rescues from death and the devil, and gives eternal salvation to all who believe this, as the words and promises of God declare. Okay? In what sense... In what sense does it work forgiveness of sins? Well, we've already talked about that, how it takes the forgiveness won by Christ on the cross and, and brings it down to us. You know, St. John the Evangelist sees it this way. Do you remember how he, very, very stunningly, very stunningly, because he's the, as far as we know, he's the only eyewitness of Jesus' disciples to the crucifixion. And he's standing right there with Mary. And when the soldier, when the soldier inserts the spear into Jesus' side and it pierces his heart, what flows out from his side? Water and blood. Now, this is a little bit of an open question, but if you pay attention to what John says next, John's, John like doubles down on this and says, I have seen this, and he who witnesses is telling the truth, and he goes on and on and on. What's the point of that if when Jesus got stabbed with the spear, it was just watery blood? It's not, it wasn't watery blood. It was water and blood. It was a miracle, and it was undescribable. And so John doubles down and says, look, I saw it with my own eyes. What I'm telling you is true. Now, why water and blood from the side of Jesus? John picks this up in his epistles and tells us that it's the water, the blood, and the spirit, and these three bear witnesses one. What? What does that mean? Well, back to John's Gospel where he's talking about Christ. As soon as Christ 
dies, the English texts have this terrible translation. He gave up the ghost. Bah! He handed over, the Greek word paradosis, traditio in Latin, he handed over his Holy Spirit. He didn't give up the ghost. He kicked the bucket. He gave up, handed over, traditioned his Holy Spirit. And then what comes next immediately after that? The spear and the water and the blood. Okay. Now, John takes this to be the water of baptism and the blood in the chalice. The water of baptism and the blood in the chalice. How does John take it to be that way? How do the church fathers, students of John, take it this way? Because in the beginning, in the garden, remember, God creates man, Adam, and where does he take, where does he take the woman from? His side. But first, what does he do to the man? Puts him to sleep, into a deep sleep, then takes from, him, takes from his side and forms the woman. So Jesus is put into the deep sleep of the cross, from which he'll awaken on Easter morning. He's put into deep sleep, and from his side, God takes that which he will use to make the church, the true mother of all the living. Water, holy baptism, and blood, the chalice, the New Testament in his blood. These two things are what make and create the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Okay. So then John has no problem in his epistles saying these three are witnesses. The Holy Spirit, who works through the Word, obviously, and baptism and the Lord's Supper. And these are all saying to you, you belong to God. You are saved. John's so great, he says, even if your own heart condemns you, there is one that is, who is greater than your heart. So listen to him. You know, when your heart's condemning you and running you down and telling you you're not really a Christian and it was all just fake and faux, just be like, okay, that's enough of you. What does the Spirit say? What does the water say? What does the blood say? It says, I belong to Jesus. It says, he died for me. It says, he baptized me and will not revoke it says that he extends his chalice, his blood to me for the forgiveness of all my sins. And where the blood of Christ, God's only Son, touches my lips, I am truly cleansed. What do we say? We say, if, if, we, have no, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just, who will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John goes on to say that it is his blood that cleanses us from our sins. So when that blood pours from the side of Jesus to the chalice to our lips, we're cleansed. Okay, so you've got this, you've got this really kind of complex biblical imagery going on in the background. And we're just going to, we're going to simplify all of that. We're going to say that, that it works forgiveness of sins, rescues from death and the devil, and gives eternal salvation to all who believe this as the words and promises of God declare. Okay? So what pours from Jesus' side is that water that washes us clean, washes us of our sins. And if sin is taken away, well, the wages of sin is death, and when you die, you would go to hell or eternal death. And so, so if sin is removed, then death is removed. And if death is removed, then eternal death or hell is removed. And that's the way that, that's the way that Luther is working his logic here. Where there's forgiveness of sins, there's life and salvation. That is, we're rescued from death and the devil. Okay, now you can see the place of faith here that Luther puts in. It works forgiveness of sins, rescues from death and the devil, and gives eternal salvation to all who believe this. Okay, so it's not like baptism is like, again, it's not like you can just zap people with baptism and it's some kind of insurance policy that even if they reject baptism and reject Christ, they're still somehow saved. It doesn't work that way. It is a promise of God. It is valid. It is to be received by faith. Okay, well, which are these words and promises of God? In other words, where does Luther get this theology? Christ our Lord says in the last chapter of Mark, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. All right? Um, you can see here that our Lord Jesus doesn't, doesn't pit faith and baptism against each other, which again is kind of the very common like 
evangelical move is to say, well, if I'm saved by faith alone, then it's not by baptism. Baptism is just a work. But you can see that for Jesus, faith and baptism go together. There's no, there's no contradiction there. There's no, there's no fight between the two. Whoever believes and is baptized, if you believe, you're going to be baptized because Jesus tells you to. The Jesus whom, in whom you believe is telling you to be baptized. Believe and be baptized and you'll be saved. Now, if, what if baptism was a human work? What if baptism was, like so many of the evangelicals tell us, an act of obedience that you perform for God? Then what would Jesus be saying? Whoever believes and does this work will be saved. So it's now, now we're back to salvation by works. So if you want to read, if you want to take evangelical theology and read that into the words of Jesus, you have works righteousness. You just... That pendulum done swung all the way back around and you're in Rome again. <laughs> okay? So how do we want to read that? Well, baptism isn't the work of man. Baptism is the work of God. Baptism is the way in which God connects us to his cross. God washes away our sins. Yeah, but isn't it done through a pastor? Yeah, all of God's works are done through people. It's still God who's doing it. But don't I have to decide to be baptized? Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Unless your parents baptized you earlier, which is great. Um, but even then, are you going to take credit for that? No, it's God's work. I mean, let's just say that you out of the blue, God never instituted baptism. And you said, I'm going to institute this thing called baptism. It's going to wash away all my sins. God would be like, <coughs> excuse me? That's not how this works. So God gives it as a gift, institutes it, calls all people to it, gives it as a blessed and lavish gift. So, baptism and faith. Whoever, is, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Here our Lord himself connects baptism to salvation. And then here's the ticket. But whoever does not believe it will be condemned. So it's not a lack of baptism that damns, strictly speaking, but a lack of faith. You know, what happens if you're a Christian? You, ra you were raised in a tradition where they said, you know, you decide when to be baptized and you just never decided to be baptized. You finally come to a Lutheran church and they tell you, no, Jesus said be baptized, be baptized. And you go, okay, let's set it up for this Sunday. And then on the way to church, you die in a car accident. Okay, God, you get up to heaven and God says, let me check the box here. Whoever believes, check, and is baptized will be saved. Ooh, ooh, sorry, sorry. No, it's not how God is and it's not how this works. Whoever believes and is baptized aren't check marks, aren't things we do for God. There are things that he does and gives to us. And then whoever does not believe will be saved. So if we, if we don't have a chance to be baptized, God still graciously takes us into his arms on account of faith and receives us. No doubt about it. There's lots of examples like that in the Bible. Well, not lots, but a few important ones. Okay, so whoever, does not, or whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. So far, so good? Let's pause. I've been talking a lot. Let's see if you have any questions or any thoughts or anything that I've confused you on. Okay, I see some hands. I don't think we have a microphone. Okay. Yeah, please. What if you're baptized and don't believe? Why would you not believe? <laughs> I mean, that's my answer. Why would you not believe? Yeah, baptism, baptism is literally God choosing you and saying, you are my child. I love you and you belong to me. So, yeah, I mean, if, so we can talk objectively. If somebody rejects that and dies, they've rejected God. They've rejected what God's given them. You, know. um, you can think of it a little bit like this. Like, a, like let's say that God said, hey, Rhodey, I put a bazillion dollars into your account. Is it actually there or not? Yeah, if God says it's there, it's there. But what if I don't believe it? It's still there. It's just not there for me because I'm a knucklehead. Right? I won't write a check. Okay? I won't use it. I won't believe it, and therefore I won't use it. So the same thing works by analogy with baptism. When God baptizes, you have a bazillion dollars in your account. It's real. It's there. He's made his promise and pledge. On his end, it's good. You belong to him. If you, don't ever write, if you don't believe that and don't ever write a check, if you don't ever believe you're baptized, who's that on? You, not God. So, so unbelief does not negate baptism. It's not like God's baptizing you saying, oh, pretty please meet me halfway so this will work. No, God never works that way. 
God says, boom, you're baptized. You didn't choose, and in many cases, when we're young, it's like, you didn't choose to be born? You're not going to choose to be born again. And you are. And it's like, well, yeah, you can reject, you know, can't I reject that? You can reject that. Why would you ever? Yeah? I, I'm sorry? Yeah. Yeah. Yep, the renunciation of baptism. Not a certificate. Huh. That's such a ripoff. We invented certificates. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Right. Say, if it was meaningless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so Absolutely. You know, it's just, that's what God wants us to do, is just wallow in salvation. Yes. Absolutely. The minimum necessary. Right, right, exactly. Exactly what you're talking about, but on the other side is I struggle with the story of the narrow gate. You know, how many many will think they're Christians, but are turned away? I mean, that terrifies me. Absolutely. I think that's its point. Yeah, so Luther's got a great comment on this that really helps, and it's in his great Galatians uh, lectures. He, and, and he's working with these verses, um, you know, very similar to these, uh, that you know, some are all-encompassing, hey, you're all in, and then some are like, wait a minute, the gate's narrow. What's going on here? Luther says, you cannot let, you cannot let the gospel into your flesh. What does he mean by that? Because if you go, Christ died for all my sins... I'm going to heaven no matter what, I believe and am baptized, then, and you let that gospel go into your flesh, what's your flesh do? Ah, go on sinning, the grace may abound. Right? To which St. Paul says, by no means. Okay? So what, is, so what, what have you done? You've, you've let the gospel get into your flesh. Luther says you can't do that. When you end up doing that, you end up being like seriously antinomian, lawless. Right? Just, hey, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. Christ loves sinners, that's great, because sinning is what I do. Uh, nowhere, nowhere does Jesus or St. Paul or anyone else pen a verse that's anything even like that, right? Okay. So then what's the flip side of that? Never let the law in your conscience. Never let the gospel in your flesh. Never let the law in your conscience. If you put, your lo- if you put the law in your conscience, then it looks like this. You're saved if... If what? Well, fill in the blank, or rather it's whatever blank your sinful flesh or Satan or whatever wants to put in there. And it's either self-righteousness, I've done that, I'm good, or it's despair, I haven't done that, I can't do that. So, so again, if we consider ourselves to be conscience and flesh, then when we hear the passage narrow, we want to put that on the flesh. I want to say, yeah. Death to you. Don't you dare get in the way of this. Don't you dare put me on the wide path that leads to destruction. Right? Take that in. Tremble. Be afraid. Be sick to your stomach. Cling to Christ. Repent. Take this seriously. Right? That's perfect. That's great. That's the right use of that. Okay? Um, now, now, we don't want to let that into the conscience. It's narrow. Who gets in? Have you done enough? Have you met the conditions? Right? You don't want to let that in. So what do, you do, what do you do then in the soul? You let the gospel be in the soul, and the gospel be in the conscience. 
That's Luther's take on this, right? So it's rightly discerning law and gospel. It's rightly using law and gospel. It's rightly hearing law and gospel. Um, and I think it's a profoundly helpful way to think. Yeah. And it's not just that Jesus is doing rhetoric on us. You know, I mean, these things are true. But they're true precisely because they're not believed. They're rejected. So maybe one, maybe one thing to um, just wrap up since we're at the end of time. Since somehow it's, the temperature has gone exponentially up. I'm ready for a nap. It's not good for the second service, folks. <laughs> if the preacher's falling asleep during his own sermon, oh. So, a person who has become an atheist, renounced their baptism. Maybe even just as Christians, we renounce the devil and affirm the creed. Maybe they have renounced the creed, re renounced baptism and affirmed the devil. Okay? So many years pass and the atheist shows up on our doorstep and says, Pastor Rody, what, what am I supposed to do? This is what I've done. What's the answer? Be baptized again? Nope. The baptism is already there. One baptism for the remission of sins. God foresaw all this foolishness you were going to do and he baptized you anyway and washed all your sins away. While, while you were faithless, he was faithful. He didn't depart from you even for a second. And it's his hand that has brought you back here. So welcome. You are still washed. You are still a son of God. Just as the prodigal departed from his true father and returned to his father, so you have returned to your father's house. Be clothed in the robe of his righteousness. Be fed with a, fat, be fed with a fattened calf that is the sacrament of the altar. And come and rejoice with us, fellow sinners redeemed by Christ. That's the answer. All right, the Lord be with you. <laughs>